As the band's coming down, beloved, I want you to open up your Bibles with me this morning to Romans chapter 14. And we're beginning a new section this morning with Paul. And, uh, you know, if you read it in preparation for this Sunday, you might be looking at it and thinking, this is obviously it's the, the word of God, but um, what does this really have to do with the gospel? And what I would say to you is this, is that this in this text that we're looking at this morning, Paul is just speaking to us about personal convictions. He's speaking to us about how we form decisions about how we live our lives in areas in which the New Testament does not speak explicitly. How do we orient our lives under the Lordship of Christ in such a way as we can we can do what we do and, and participate or, or in, engage in whatever it is that we engage in and do so from a heart of worship and from a heart of thanksgiving. And so when we look at this today, the idea is this. We're going to look at you know how it is that the church, how we are to relate to one another as it regards our personal convictions. And how we relate to one another as it regards our personal convictions and how we form our personal convictions says very much about the Lordship of Christ. And that's why this text is very important. So I don't want you to just kind of like disengage or sleep through this one because it doesn't seem as exciting as the last few chapters. This text is important. It's important for the unity of the body of Christ, right? I mean, I want you to think about this. This text that we're looking at this morning, listen, it's not entirely new. And what I mean by that is this. Already, Paul has been describing to us much about how we are to live and interact with our brothers and sisters in Christ. He's commanded us to love one another, right? With a brotherly love. He's commanded us to outdo one another in showing honor, right? He's commanded us to care for each other's needs, to be hospitable to one another, to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. He's called us to be of one mind with one another and to humble, be humble toward one another. And all those things are essential in the body of Christ, right? It's essential for our unity and it's essential because they are the marks. Those, those, those active, you know, expressions of love are the marks of gospel transformation among us. And because they are, they are that way, right? They're essential for our testimony to the world. Think about what the Lord Jesus Christ said to his disciples. He said to them, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. Why is that important? Here's why. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, right? So he's talked to us a lot about how we're to relate to one another in the body of Christ. And he continues here. So let's stand together and I want us to read the entirety of this text. We're going to read all the way through. To, to verse 23, but we're just going to, we're going to focus this morning uh, up through verse 12. So let's look at it together. This is the word of God. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. 
Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives, gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, as we read this text, there is so much in this text, so much that, that, that this text embraces and involves, so much to think about. And Father God, we need you to lead us and guide us by your Spirit to rightly apprehend and rightly comprehend what you are teaching to us through the pen of Paul in this text. Lord God, we know that everything that we do, all that we, all that we are, the life that we live is under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We are not our own anymore. We've been purchased with a price. And so therefore, Lord God, we don't live to ourselves anymore. We live before the face of the living God. And we live, Lord God, before you so that Father, we, we might meet with your approval that now that you have redeemed us and saved us by the blood of your son, we might walk in a way that's pleasing in your sight, that we might live in a manner, Lord God, that reflects the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we look to you. We look to you to hear your word. We look to you to receive from you your infallible counsel and wisdom. And we pray, Lord God, that your word might grip our hearts this morning. 
that your word might grip our souls this morning. That, Lord God, we would embrace the hearing of your word with a heart that is diligent and focused. With a heart, Lord God, that is not easily distracted or easily amused. And that, Father, we would take seriously this time when we hear you speak to us your words of life. So to that end, Father, I'm praying that you will empty me of myself and that you'll fill me with the Holy Spirit. That you'll give me the unction of the Spirit of Christ today as I preach, so that Christ's voice might be heard as I speak your word. Lord, I pray that you would, you would hide me behind the cross. I pray, Father God, that you would make me of no significance and Christ of all significance. And I pray, Lord God, that you would make the hearts of your people to be engaged this morning. Father God, I pray that we would hear these words and receive them gladly. Father, that our thinking would be shaped and molded by the perfect mind of God. So be glorified, Lord. And I pray that the teaching and the preaching of your word today and the reception of it would be in keeping with the glory that you deserve. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we talked a little bit, a little bit already, beloved, about how Paul has given us these commandments, right? About how we are, how it is that we're to relate to each other. And now moved by the Holy Spirit, Paul's going to talk to us for an entire chapter, right? Romans 14, about the way in which we are to relate to one another, right? How it is that we are to re-interact with one another. And the fact that Paul feels the need, right, to do this for an entire chapter, that he's led by the Spirit of God to do this, tells us that, that's, that, that this, what he has to say to us is of no small importance. In particular, Paul's going to describe to us how we're to relate to one another in matters of spiritual maturity. How we're to relate to one another in, as it regards our personal convictions and how, must, how they must never be a source of strife or division or wreck the beautiful unity and fellowship that Christ has already established by His blood and by the Holy Spirit. And so this is an important message. And it's an important matter that stretches through an entire chapter. And so before we get into the text this morning, here's what I want to do. I want to lay out a framework for us to properly understand what Paul is teaching us in this chapter. To, to, to understand what Paul is addressing here. So I want to I lay a foundation for us. I want to lay a, a, a framework for us. Some foundational thoughts to rightly approach this text. Okay, and I've got, what do I have? Five of them, I think. Hold on. Yeah, five of them. Okay, I've got five of them. First one is this. This text, beloved, and I want you to write these down. I don't want you to just look at me. I want you to write these down. Look, the first thing is this. This text is made necessary by the fact that, listen, in every church fellowship, among the brethren, there are differences in spiritual maturity, right? We're not all at the exact same level in our sanctification, right? There's differences in spiritual maturity. There's differences in in spiritual understanding and in the application of the gospel truth to the whole of our lives, Like, some of us are more experienced in our walk with Christ than others are, right? There's a great deal of diversity within the body of Christ. There's diversity in age. There's diversity in education and personality and cultural and religious backgrounds. Like, we aren't all cookie-cutter people. It was true in the Roman church, right? And it's true for us. That's the first thing. Then second... 
These differences that we all share, they contribute to differing personal convictions as a matter of conscience. That is, how to best live a life of faithfulness to the Lord in a way that honors Him. Okay? Now, I want to make sure we understand something from the very jump. These differences, beloved, that Paul is talking about here. Okay? When he's talking about those that eat meat and those that don't. And those that count the days and those that don't. What he's talking about here, listen to me, are not matters of essential doctrine as laid down in the Scriptures. They're not. They're not matters of essential doctrine as laid down specifically in the book of Romans. Okay? And that's vital to understand. The differences that Paul is talking about here are not differences over the gospel. They're not differences over the fundamental matters of the faith, the fundamental doctrines of of Christianity. Paul is clear in all of his writings on that, that there is to be no flexibility with regard to the gospel, right? Right? There's to be no give when it regards the fundamental doctrines of the faith or the commands of Christ. We are to fervently hold to them and not tolerate any deviation regarding the clearly revealed truth of Scripture, right? In fact, in this very same epistle, Paul's going to write these words. When we get to Romans chapter 16, he's going to say, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. He's not talking about essential gospel doctrine. For instance, we know this, you know, Paul had no problem, did he? Denouncing the, those that were adding circumcision and the ceremonial law to the cross as a matter of salvation. Remember over in, in Galatians, when the, the Judaizers were there and they were trying to confuse the gospel and they were like, well, yeah, you know, you needed Jesus to die on the cross, but in order to be saved, you also need to follow all of the ceremonial law of the Jews. And if you're not circumcised, that better happen tomorrow. Right? You remember what Paul said about that? If even we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. Let him be damned. So the issue here is not a matter of essential doctrine. It's not a matter of, of, of you know, Scripture clearly says this, and I have a personal conviction that what Scripture says is not true. That, that's not what's in view here. That's delusion. Okay? What's in view here are what we call personal convictions. Okay? Personal convictions, beloved, are this. They're, they are determinations and beliefs regarding our conduct and our lives that are not explicitly defined by Scripture, but to which we hold as a matter of personal faith and piety. Okay, Personal convictions are those convictions and beliefs that we, that we form where there is, you know... Where there, where a clear absolute is not laid down in the scripture, but which we develop and we support by our study of scripture and our conscience. In other words, convictions draw the line. They draw the line between what I will do and what I will not do as an exercise of Christian liberty and what I will do and what I will not do in areas of conduct Listen now, that are not clearly explained in Scripture. Personal convictions are important, but they're not of first importance. Third thing is this. In the body of Christ, 
Differing convictions are to be expected, right? And Christians cannot let them become a source of division or ill will or disunity or strife. We are called, beloved, in Scripture to forbear with our brothers and sisters in Christ, although we may not see eye to eye on these emphasis here, secondary matters. Secondary. We've got to agree on the gospel. And we've got to agree on the clear commandments that we have in the New Testament. But there are areas in which we may respectfully disagree, and we do. Fourth thing. Paul uses in this chapter some examples that were familiar to the Romans. Right? Food and drink. Okay? Meat or wine. Meat and wine. Um, of the observance of holy days. But I want you to notice what Paul does here. He stops deliberately short of giving specific answers for each one of these examples. Did you notice that as we were reading it through? Like Paul didn't say, you know what, here's the deal. Everybody should just eat meat and get over it. Give thanks to God because you can eat meat now and eat it. He doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't do that. Instead, he gives us principles that we are to apply in every situation because Paul respects the individual conscience before the Lord. And so must we. And using meat and drink and holy days as an example, Paul gives us principles here to apply when we have differences of personal conviction within the body of Christ. Okay? And it's important we recognize this for the sake of church unity because there are a multiplicity of areas in which brothers and sisters in Christ can hold to differing yet God-honoring con- convictions, right? And we have differing convictions in this body. No, we don't. Yeah, we do. Let me just give you a few. I mean, just a few instances, right? We have differences of conviction over what, re- what constitutes God-honoring art and music. Not everybody agrees, right? We have differences over, you know, schooling. Whether it's public school or Christian school or homeschool. I know excellent brothers and sisters in Christ who have no problem enjoying wine or a beer with a meal. And I know equally faithful Christians who would never touch a drop of alcohol. Which one's right? And your answer to that is, which one's closer to your own personal conviction? How much did you have in savings account and still be living by faith? Is it allowable to read fiction or Christian fiction books? Or can you only read the Bible and theology books? And if it's only theology books, are you allowed to read only Reformed theology books? Or can you read other theology books too that may not be Reformed but have good stuff in it? What, what are you allowed to do? What Bible translation should we use? Well, it's King James only or you're going to hell. There are people who believe that. Should we watch movies? What kind of movies are proper? Should and how should a Christian use social media? You kind of know where I am on that. How should a Christian dress for worship? Should you wear your best suit or business casual or just dress like you do every other day? Should a Christian have a tattoo? What kind of tattoo is permissible? Should a Christian have a gun for home defense? Could a Christian hunt? Is it okay to kill Bambi? Should a Christian practice family planning? Can you wear no makeup, a little makeup, or a lot of makeup, whatever you need, honey? Is it jewelry or only wedding rings? And if you wear jewelry, how much is too much? What about your hairstyle? What about, you know, can you have a beard? Can you have a mustache? Or is that the sign of a lazy man like somebody told me a long time ago? The the list is endless, isn't it? Isn't it? And Scripture doesn't say explicitly, well, you should have a beard. 
Or at least a goatee. It's fashionable. It doesn't say that. How we respond to one another when we have differing convictions is not a small matter. Because we're to avoid two extremes that we'll talk about here in a second. And then one last comment. I want to make sure that we understand here that Paul is not saying that we should just be, you know, flabby and, and, and unconcerned and never, never discern anything or judge anything. That's not what he's saying here. Okay? And there are some people who have taken it to that extreme. Like when you talk to them about something that's clearly defined in Scripture, they'll be the whole, you know this, this is the one verse that everybody in the world knows whether they're saved or not. Judge not, lest you be judged, right? Which completely ignores the context. Listen, understand this. Paul's not saying that we should never discern right and wrong. He's not saying that we should never make biblically sound judgments. Of course we should. Rather, he's saying, where there's, there is no need for judgment, where there is no violation of God's revealed will. And in the matter of personal convictions, no matter which one you hold, it's not a matter of breaking God's revealed will. Are you with me? We are called to judge and discern what's pure and what's impure. We're called to discern what's holy or sinful, what's righteous or unrighteous, the wide and the narrow, and you know, the good fruit and bad fruit. We're to confront sin. We're to rebuke and admonish and instruct and exhort with patience and with all long suffering our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're to spur one another on in godliness, and that means we need to understand and be able to discern what godliness is. Judgment, discernment. Rebuke, correction, they are needful things in the household of God. But Paul's point in this text is that in the matter of personal biblical convictions, there is no sin to be judged or discerned or confronted. There's just God-honoring convictions that need to be embraced and accepted. Now these first 12 verses here, in chapter 14, they break out into three blocks of thought. And I'm just going to give them to you at the beginning so that you can be on the lookout for them as we go through this text, okay? There's three blocks of thought here. Paul says, first of all, we've got to forbear with one another because personal convictions are not a salvific man, uh, matter. They're not a salvific matter. Personal convictions don't earn you merit with God. And they're not a way of achieving a greater standing with God. Okay, If you think your personal convictions actually gain you merit with God, then you have moved from the plane of personal convictions into legalism. You hearing me? Are you hearing me? Personal convictions don't earn merit with God. Our standing with God is fully and it's finally established by the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ, period. Second, personal convictions must be thoroughly considered so that the one who holds to them does so with a clear conscience before the Lord. In other words, there's no default when it comes to personal convictions. You actually have to think about these things. You've got to consider them. You've got to, you've got to really think them through so that you can hold them before a, with a clear conscience before the Lord and that you honor Christ and you can do so with thanksgiving and then the third thing is this don't be over much concerned with your brothers and sisters personal convictions when they are not sin because because each one of us is going to give a personal account for ourselves to the lord 
You will not stand under the examination of God for your brother or your sister's personal convictions. They will. You will stand under the searching eye of God for your own personal convictions and for how you treated one another and for the way that you lived your life. Christ is master and judge of His people. And we've got no right to usurp His place in this matter. In other words, what I hope you're seeing is, and I'll point it out as we go, each block of thought here is established on a doctrinal truth that Paul has already laid down in this epistle. So he's not shooting from the hip. I mean, he can't be. He's being, you know, he's inspired by the Spirit of the living God, right? But he's grounding what he's saying here and what he's been teaching. So let's look at it. Let's, let's look at this text together and get to the heart of what God is saying to us through his servant Paul, right? And the first thing I want us to see is, is this matter of personal convictions not being an issue of salvation. Look at verse, verses 1 through 4. Paul writes, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now Paul's making a division here, right? Isn't he? He's making a division between two groups of people in the Roman church that he calls the strong and the weak. The strong and the weak in faith. The weak, of course, they will only eat vegetables. That's what they feel compelled that that they must do in order to honor God, while the strong one eats everything. You know, we got a, what is it, an herbivore and an omnivore here, right? And Paul is, he's using this as an example. Now here's the deal. There's no need for us to try to, to discover who is in each party. That's not the point, okay? And a lot of guys have spilled a lot of ink trying to define who this is. Let me just say, that's not the point, and Paul doesn't give us enough detail here to make a clear and concise determination. But that's not our focus anyway. Our focus are the principles that Paul lays down for us here, right? Now notice, I want you to see, he tells us that the strong are to welcome the weak in faith. Now what does that mean? Who are the weak in faith? What, what does it mean to be weak in faith? Again, it's not a, it's not a denial of essential doctrine. Okay, it's not, this is not somebody that's claiming to be a Christian but doesn't believe in the virgin birth. Okay, that's not what's going on here. It's not a false faith, right? It's a weak faith. You with me? It's not a false faith, it's a weak faith. And the weak have this weakness in understanding the scope of their freedom in the gospel. They're immature in their understanding and they need to grow. They were not, you know, They're not promoting heresy that undermines the gospel, or Paul would never have said to welcome them. Rather, it's just that they don't fully comprehend their freedom in Christ. They don't really get the full implications of the gospel, the full application of the gospel to the entirety of their lives. And they stand in contrast to, you know, the strong, who understand the freedom that they have from sin and from hell and from from Satan, and they grasp the freedom that they have in Christ that that no longer involves what they eat or holy days or ceremonies or whatever else. And he says, look, in the body of Christ, as those that have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, 
Listen, the one who is weak in faith is to be welcomed. He's to be welcomed with open arms. He's to be welcomed not as a second-class citizen, but as someone of equal standing with everybody else in the body of Christ. He is to be warmly received and fully accepted into the fellowship. He's to be loved with brotherly love and cared for as a brother or a sister in Christ because brotherly affection demands no less. You're to receive Him with open arms, but not for the purpose of arguing with Him or quarreling over His opinions or debating and wrangling with that person and attempting to Thrust your own convictions upon them as being a measure of being a truly faithful Christian. You with me? You following with me? You know what I'm talking about. There are some people in the matter of secondary things, of personal conviction, that will come alongside a weaker brother or a sister in Christ, and man, they can be the most oppressive person ever in the history of mankind. Because they come and they make them doubt whether or not they're truly saved unless they hold to the same convictions that they hold to and therefore please God. Paul is saying, do not do that. Do not do that. I remember, and I'm not saying this to, you know, take a shot at, you know, all homeschooling parents. That's not what this is about. But I remember when my older kids were younger and they were in the public school system and there was somebody that homeschooled and they wrote me like a three-page letter calling into question like just about everything. My interpretation of Scripture, my understanding of leadership, you know, my being an example to the flock, all this other stuff. And how the only right perspective that anyone could have is to homeschool your children, period. And I remember when I got that letter, I said, well, hold on a minute. Are you telling me that I am sinning against God because my children attended at that time public school? And that's indeed what they were saying. That's Christian malpractice, beloved. Moses was educated where? Where? In Egypt. I just bring that up to say, as an example, like, look, what he's saying here is you're not to strong arm weaker believers in Christ if you consider yourself to be stronger. Can I just say, too, I've never met a Christian yet in the matter of personal convictions that viewed themselves as the weak one. Never. Never. Not once. Not one time. Has anybody ever said to me, well, I'm the weaker brother here? Not one time. Never. Instead, here's the deal. Instead of just you know, welcoming them to argue with them and conform them to whatever it is that you desire. Listen, we're to understand that we are to give our brothers and our sisters in Christ room to grow. We're to give grace to one another. We're to give space to grow and mature as the Lord directs by His Holy Spirit. Listen, the Holy Spirit is the sanctifier of your brother and sister, not you. Not that God doesn't use you for that. Obviously, I'm preaching to you for the purpose of your sanctification. But I am not the one that sanctifies your soul. God is. God is. And we're to give space to one another to grow. Space to to understand, to to grow and, and comprehend freedom in Christ as the Lord directs. Not become overcritical about secondary matters.
We're all at different stages in our growth with Christ. And so here's what he's getting at here. He says, look, there are two extremes you've got to avoid at all costs. Those of you who consider yourself to be strong in the faith are not to despise or belittle or mock those who are weaker. You don't have to put yourself in a position of, of, of mocking those who you feel like haven't arrived like you have. Likewise, the weak. Notice I didn't say those who consider themselves weak. The weak, the actually weak, are not to pass judgment on those who are strong and declare that such and such a person couldn't possibly be saved because they do X, Y, and Z, and we don't do that. We shouldn't jump to the conclusion that someone who does things that are not in keeping with our own personal convictions is not saved. And yet it's easy to do, isn't it, beloved? Isn't it? It's easy to do. Look, that person might be a weaker brother. Right? Give him space to grow. Or, you know what might actually be true? Is that he's stronger than you are. And you should learn from him. But unless somebody is overtly denying some fundamental doctrine of the faith or living in unrepentant sin, I have no right to despise or to judge that person. Both of those things are sin. We don't have the right to despise one or the right to pass judgment on another because to do that is to usurp the place of Christ and Jesus doesn't need help. You remember what Jesus said in John chapter 5? He said, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to who? The Son. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. And, and He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. We have no right to sit in judgment because Christ can handle that himself just fine. Thank you very much. Moreover, we've got no right to act in that way because both the weak and the strong, Paul says, have been welcomed by God. Been welcomed by God. In other words, when we sit in matters, when we sit in judgment in matters of personal conviction, we deny God's verdict concerning our brother and a sister in Christ. Do you see that? God has welcomed them. God has brought them into the family, right? God has welcomed your brother and your sister. Now you remember earlier I said that, that everything that Paul tells us in this text is rooted in doctrines that he's already taught. Well, the doctrine that he's teaching here, or the doctrine that he's establishing, his statements on here is the doctrine of justification, right? Our acceptance. Our reconciliation, our reception by God into the family of God. Your brother or your sister, just like you, stands righteous and accepted before God, not because of merit, not because of their personal convictions, but because the blood of Christ has covered their sins and they're clothed in His righteousness. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who what? Justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What a horrible picture if Christ must intercede for a Christian against a Christian. We don't pass judgment in matters of personal conviction as if we're the righteous judge of the universe. Who are we to do that? Charles Hodge says, a denunciatory or a censorious, that's hypercritical, spirit is hostile to the spirit of the gospel, if we're quick to denounce, if we're strident and harsh and shrill in that denunciation, we need to do some repenting and some reflection. He's right. Christ is the master of His people. 
Not you. Not me. When he says here, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. What he's getting at is this. He's getting at the fact that, look, it's before Christ himself that your brother and sister is going to give an account of his life. So are you. And it's not before you, right? Even, even more than that, the glory of Christ is seen in this. And that on the day of judgment, even though there's a diversity of personal convictions, everyone who is truly in Christ will stand fast on that day. His work of preserving us in the faith will not be for naught. Christ will receive His glory from making us to stand by His power in the day of judgment, whether we were homeschoolers, Christian schoolers, or public schoolers, or a mix of all three at some point or another. Or, whether we have a tattoo or pristine skin. Or whether we watch movies or not. Or whether we practice family planning or had 20 kids in a TV show. Christ is going to have His glory by making everybody who's His, regardless of personal convictions or spiritual maturity, to stand on that last day. And the doctrine that underlines all of this is what Paul has already taught about the preservation of the saints. You remember the five golden links of salvation, right? For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, what? He also, you finish it, glorified. Past tense. It's done already. It's done in the mind of God. Beloved, each of us stands or falls before God, not on the basis of personal conviction, but on the basis of Christ's salvific work and our response to it. And we're welcomed by God when we respond in repentance and faith to the saving life and the substitutionary death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for our salvation. And God will make us stand. As, as the writer, as the writer of Jude, as Jude says, right? Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Personal convictions do not save us. They can't condemn us and they do not add saving merit to us. Now don't misunderstand me. That doesn't mean that how we live before the Lord is unimportant or insignificant. It doesn't mean that your personal convictions don't matter. Because they do. You can't just live haphazardly without giving thought to how to please God. And that's not the point of what Paul is saying here. In fact, he makes it very clear in this next section with what he, what he you know, lays down as the responsibilities of those personal convictions. And he describes how they must be thoroughly considered so that they honor the Lord. Look at what he says, again, beginning in verse 5. He says, each person esteems one day as better than another. I'm sorry, one person esteems one day as better than another. While another esteems all days alike, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. 
For this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. So here Paul introduces the issue regarding the matter of days, right? Somebody esteems one day better than another, and one, day, one, one person just looks at all days as being equal. They're all the same, right? Again, it's an example. It's just an example. But I do want to say just one thing here, because I have heard this text taken and abused. Paul is not talking here about the Christian Sabbath. He's not talking here about the Lord's Day. He's not talking about the Lord's Day as if it's just optional or, you know, just another day on the calendar or, you know, you're just free to do whatever you want on the Lord's Day. That is not what he's saying at all. That's not the focus here at all. Rather, what he does have in view is most likely the Jewish Sabbath, which was Saturday, right? And and the fact is, is that there were Jewish Christians who still kept Saturday as like Sabbath light, you know, as a matter of personal conviction. And the Lord's Day as well. So it's a matter of like that day. Like some of them would say to Gentile believers, like if you want to be fully pleasing to God, you should keep both of these days. And Paul, you know, would say, no, you got to be firmly convinced. You keep the day. You got to keep the Sabbath, right? You keep the Lord's Day. In our time, it would be like this. Or feast days, through the Jewish feast days. In our days, you know, it might be something like this. Even holidays, right? Like, for instance, some people celebrate Father's Day and some people don't. Some people celebrate Mother's Day and some people don't. Some people celebrate Independence Day. And some people don't. Some people don't celebrate Christmas. Right? But the point that he's getting at here, again, is that it's a matter of personal conviction. And what we need to see when we look at what he says in verses 5 through 9 is that We've got to understand these convictions were held, that were held by both the strong and the weak were not vehicles for personal sin. In other words, the convictions that the weak held were not opportunities for their self-exaltation. You know, we do more, so we're more spiritual. Nor, nor were the stronger brothers using their freedom in Christ as a means of satisfying fleshly desires and camouflaging those desires in spiritual lingo, right? Instead, Paul says here, the one who observes a day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats in honor of the Lord, gives thanks to God, abstains in honor of the Lord, gives thanks to God, right? The root of the convictions, both weak and strong, is their longing to magnify the Lord with a God-centered Christ-exalting faith that they would do what they do in honor of the Lord and giving thanks to the Lord. Okay? That's the deal. I'm doing this as an act of worship. As an act of honoring God, not honoring myself. And then he comes to this significant statement that you can just jump over real quickly if you don't stop for a moment. He says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind underline that in your Bible. If you underline in your scripture in the Bible, underline that statement. Here's the principle Paul's throwing down. He's saying whatever personal conviction that you come to about how you live, you should be fully convinced in your own mind. In other words, you should come to that position as the product of thorough consideration. That the conviction that you come to about how you school your child, or whether or not you can partake in, you know, a glass of wine, 
or if you should go to the movies, or how you should dress for worship. Those convictions that you come to must be thoroughly considered. They've got to be examined. They need to be prayed over and scripturally measured. It means you should have wrestled with this issue and sought the Lord and then made the decision that for you, not for anybody else, but for you, that this is the conviction that you hold and that you can do it to the glory of God and you can do it with thankfulness in your heart. It's not just a matter of your personal preference. It's not just a matter of your habits or of your cultural norms that you grew up with. The measuring stick is to be that in good conscience, in this way, I believe I honor the Lord with my life. Listen, you can't borrow your convictions from somebody else. You don't just go and do something because somebody else said to do it. Again, we're talking about matters uh, that, that are not clearly addressed in the Word of God, right? For instance... Let me just say this. No one can legitimately say, I'm a Christian. But you know, I've prayed about it and I've thought about it. And I am now fully convinced that I should marry this unbeliever because in this way, I believe that I can best honor the Lord and I can do it with thankfulness in my heart. Nobody can say that and be a faithful Christian. That's not an issue of personal conviction. Because Scripture speaks clearly to it, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? So when somebody comes to you and says, I've really prayed about it and I believe God wants me to marry this unbeliever. And I've had somebody say that to me before. I'm just convinced of it. What you say to that person is, According to the Word of God, that is not a personal conviction. It's self-deception. We need to be able to look at these matters that are not clearly instructed, though, in Scripture and be able to say in sincerity, I have come to this conviction that this is the best way that I can honor the Lord and I can do this with a grateful heart to Him. In other words, here's what Paul is saying. I want you to hear this specifically, okay? I know some of you are zoning out a little bit because this is not as exciting as normal. Here's what Paul's getting at, okay? Paul's concern is that we should be fully convinced that how we are committed to living is, number one, not sinful. It's not in contradiction to Scripture. Number two, that it is honoring to Christ. Number three, that you can do and you can live in this way in faith. And then four, that you can do it with a clear conscience in the name of Christ with thanksgiving. Now here's the deal. If any of those four is missing, your personal conviction is invalid. If any of them. If any of the four is missing, your personal conviction is invalid and you need to reject it. And here's why. Because as Christ said in verse, or as Paul says in verse, well, Christ through Paul, says in Romans 14, verse 23, speaking about eating meat, but applicable to everything is this. See, look what he says. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If you can't do it, 
fully convinced that it's not sinful, that it's honoring to Christ, that you can do it in faith, and that you can, in a, with a clear conscience, do it in the name of Christ and with thanksgiving, then you need, re, need to re-examine your personal conviction. And the reason that's important is this. Because every Christian lives under the Lordship of Christ. Our life belongs to Him, right? We say that, but listen, that means every single aspect of our lives. All of it. The whole of our lives is under the Lordship of Christ. And the primary issue for all of us is that Christ is Lord and Master and we must give an account before Him because we must live for Him. I'm sorry, we must live for Him because we must give an account to Him, I'm sorry. That's the point. Christ's Lordship. Listen, that's the foundation for unity in the church amidst a diversity of convictions. It's because whether you're strong or you're weak, you don't live or die to yourself. You're not your own Lord. You're not your own master. You're not your own judge. You don't live or die to yourself. You live and die to the Lord. And Paul uses the extremes of existence here, living and dying. And therefore, he's saying everything in between we do to the Lord before His face because He's Lord over whole of our, the whole of our lives, Just not just the part we think we give to Him. And when we do what our biblically informed conscience tells us to do with a desire to serve and honor Christ... No one can pass judgment on that because Christ is our mutual Lord and our mutual sovereign. In fact, Paul says it's the very reason that Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. The dead refers to the saints that are already in glory. The living refers to you and me, right? He died to reign over believers in his presence, both in glory and those that are still on the earth. We belong to him. We live for him. And so whatever we do, whether we live or die, we do for the Lord because we are the Lord's. That's the essential doctrine underlining this, right? The Lordship of Christ. And moreover, let me just say this. Convictions might change over time. Your convictions may change over time. Mine have. My conviction regarding schooling has changed over time. It changes. Things can change. We've got to be open to that. Look, how do they change? Convictions change as we respond to the sanctifying lordship and leadership of Jesus Christ in our lives. As we grow in maturity, right? As He, as he leads us to a greater and a fuller understanding of the truth. As He moves us from relative weakness to strength. Through our experiences, right? Even through healthy conversation with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Look, I want us to understand... It's not that personal convictions are off limits. We can and we should. There are times when we can and we should debate those, those convictions. But those conversations need to be in love. They need to be in, in humility, in mutual respect, and done under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. They need to be carried out with patience. They, they must be open to the possibility. We must have them open to the possibility that we will find that our position is the weaker one and needs to be changed. But convictions change as we mature in Christ. So here's the key thing in the second part that Paul's talking about, that our personal convictions are more than just personal preferences or opinions. They can't be that. They're to spring from your understanding of Scripture. They're to spring from your desire to honor and magnify Christ as Lord. They're to spring from your understanding of your own weakness. And they should be well thought out and reasoned through. And you need to take them seriously. And we need to take care how we come to them and be careful how we relate to our brothers and sisters in light of them because Paul says here, we will each give an account to the Lord. Look at verses 10 through 12 again. He closes this first half of chapter 14 by saying, why do you pass judgment on your brother? 
Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. It is not our place in secondary matters to sit in judgment upon anybody. Instead, we must remember that we should forbear with one another in the realization that every single one of us will stand before the Lord and give an account of our lives. Each one of us will give an account for ourselves individually. You're not going to be able to hide in crowd. For Paul, the final judgment is a significant factor in our present living. Some preachers are like, you know what, man? You should never talk about judgment. Because, you know, the root of, of faithful Christianity can never be fear, but only love. I would say you probably need to read your Bible more if that's you. Because the Lord talks a lot about the fear of the Lord. And it is healthy to have a proper fear and love for your father. A fear of offending him. A fear of incurring his discipline that springs from a love for him that he planted in your heart. Paul sees no problem with speaking of the final judgment as an exhortation to proper living now. Christ is coming to judge the living and the dead. He is. And yes, we won't be judged in the same way that the world will be, right? It's not going to be a matter of eternal wrath or heaven for us. We're secure in Christ, right? We've passed from condemnation into eternal life, right? We, that can't be taken away from us. And yet, Paul says and describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due, what he is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. He's right, and that's Christians. The judgment's not a matter of salvation, but it is for reward. And so rather than despising our brother or sister in Christ or passing judgment on one another who may have a different conviction from our own about the right way to honor the Lord, we need to hold in the forefront of our minds that each one of us will stand before the judgment seat of God and we will give an account for the totality of our lives and not the life of our brother and sister. We'll give an account for our words, right? Our actions, my service, my obedience, the talents and spiritual gifts given to me, the way I used my money, how I used my time, how I treated others, especially my brothers and sisters in Christ who may have had different convictions than me. And yes, I will give an account for my own personal convictions and not anybody else's. So the implication that Paul is drawing here is this. We should be more concerned to live in light of the judgments that's coming for all of us and less concerned with passing judgment or despising our brothers and sisters in Christ in matters of personal conviction. Let God be God in their lives. Let God be God in their lives. If it's not a matter of sin, if it's not a matter of overt rebellion to the truth of God, if it's not a matter of doctrinal error, then you know what? 
maybe it would be a good idea to welcome your brother and love him and keep your mouth shut. 19th century Swiss theologian Frederick Gaudet said this, Don't judge your brother in non-essential matters because God will judge him. Judge yourself because God will judge you. So what's the conclusion of this text? Well, the conclusion of this text for Christians is simple. I can't pass judgment on my brother or my sister's sincerely held personal conviction. I'm not the one who saved him. I'm not the one who will keep him perfect to the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not his savior. I'm not his sanctifier. I'm not his sustainer. I'm not his or her Lord or judge. God is. And he's my judge as well. Christ is Lord, not me. I must seriously and thoughtfully develop my own personal convictions in areas where the Scripture does not lay down an explicit command. It's a matter of Christian seriousness and maturity. right? I can't live a haphazard life, but I need to come to convictions that I believe honor the Lord, and by which I can live thankfully before Him. But I can't force them on somebody else or let them be the grounds for despising or passing judgment. Instead, just as the Lord dealt with me, has dealt with me, I must trust that He will deal with my brother and my sister regarding their personal convictions if He thinks they need correcting. If He thinks they need correcting. Rather, my responsibility is to love my brother. Welcome Him in Christ. Receive Him with an open heart. Honor and encourage Him as He honors God. Hold Him in high regard, even if He holds to a different conviction than I do. And spur Him on to love and good works. Trusting that the Lord will work in His life for His sanctification and His conformity to the image of Christ. And beloved, when we do that, we uphold Christ. Or we glorify Christ and we uphold the power of His gospel. That's the message of this text. Don't be a Christian busybody. Be busy about your own soul. As far as those who are here that have not repented of their own sins and come to faith in Christ, here's what you must know. Listen, judgment is coming for you. You're not going to escape it. Just because you don't believe in it doesn't mean it's not true. Judgment is coming for every soul. The Lord will judge the souls of all men and women, believers and unbelievers. And there's only one place to find safety and to find refuge from the wrath that is to come on all unbelievers and rejectors of Christ Jesus. And that's in the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Scripture says there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now I want you to hear me when I say this. That's not a matter of personal conviction. That's a matter of the clear teaching of the Word of God. That's not a matter of personal conviction, but absolute truth. It's clearly stated throughout the Word of God, and especially in Paul's letter to the Romans. There is no distinction. None of us escape this description. In other words, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. That's the gospel. The gospel is this. You and I are both sinners. All of us are sinners. Everybody in this world is born a sinner. We are born in rebellion to God. We are born in opposition to God. We are born enemies of God, Scripture says. 
Every single one of us. And it's because we are all born with sin. We're born in sin. Our very nature is that of sin. And Scripture says that the wages of sin is death. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. We are all by nature under His wrath, under His condemnation. That's just how you are. And your life gives testimony to that fact because you break the law of God all the time. And the answer for you and the answer for me is not to justify ourselves. It's not to say, well, you're right. I know I break the law, but I have a really good reason. No, you don't. No, you don't. You don't have a good reason. Not in the eyes of God. We all break the law, yes. Because we all break the law by nature, we're all deserving of eternal judgment and hell and death. And you might think, well, my breaking of the law is so insignificant compared to Jeffrey Dahmer's. It really doesn't matter. No, it doesn't. I'm not saying that for you to laugh. I'm saying it because it's true. The most, quote, insignificant of sins that you might think of is an infinite offense because it's done against an infinitely holy God. And while God is holy, God is not austere. Instead, He's incredibly gracious. He's incredibly merciful. God knows that in order for you to be saved, you would have to do something that you can't possibly do. You'd have to pay for the debt of all the sins that you've ever committed since the moment you drew your first breath. And then, you'd have to live flawlessly and sinlessly for the rest of your life in this body of flesh. You can't do that. Neither can I. And that's where the glory of the gospel comes in. Before the foundation of the world, God planned how He would rescue sinners. He didn't all of a sudden get caught off guard when Adam sinned against Him in the Garden of Eden. Eve was deceived, but Adam transgressed, right? It wasn't all of a sudden, oh my goodness, what do I do? God already knew. He had the plan in place. And the plan was this. At the time that was right, according to human history, according to God's providential, you know, rulership of history, here's what He did. He sent His own Son, the second person of the Trinity, the Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ to come into this world and to take upon Himself human flesh. And He didn't arrive as a conquering, you know, 33-year-old hero. He came as a holy embryo. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a perfectly sinless life as He grew in stature and in wisdom before the Lord. He went about doing good and preaching the Word of God and healing all manner of disease as a picture of His power over sin. He did everything perfectly. The testimony of the Father was, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. Jesus lived the life of perfection that you could never live. And then at the time that was appropriate, He surrendered Himself to the authorities. He gave himself up. Yes, he was betrayed into their hands, but as the God-man, he could have called on legions of angels to defend him, and he didn't. He's unjustly condemned. He went to the cross where all of our sins were laid upon his shoulders. And not only did he die for a, for a ridiculous charge that was leveled against him, not only did he die physically, he tasted spiritual death. He endured the wrath of Almighty God on the cross against our sins. He tasted the fullness of hell 
for three hours. Darkness was upon this earth as Christ suffered in our stead. In the midst of agony, not just a physical crucifixion, but spiritual agony, he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But he had to do it. In order to save sinners, in order to rescue sinners, Almighty God, Heavenly Father, needed to send His Son into this world to take to Himself human flesh, live the life that we couldn't live, and then die the death that we deserved. And God had to treat Him as if He lived our lives so that we could be treated as if we lived His. So that we could be forgiven. So that we could be reconciled to a holy God. And Jesus did it. He did it. He died in apparent weakness and He rose in triumphant majesty from the grave. And He rose to heaven where He sits at the right hand of Almighty God waiting for the day when He comes to judge the living and the dead and to put all of His enemies under His feet as a footstool and to take to Himself all those who belong to Him. Here's reality. Your eternity is determined by this. Whether you are in Christ or you are out of Christ. Whether you're in Christ or you're in Adam. How do I get in Christ? You repent of your sin and you believe. You repent of your sin and you turn to Jesus Christ as only Lord, only Savior, only Master. You turn to Him and you surrender your life to Him. You ask Him to save you. You cry out to Him, Lord, save me a sinner. Be merciful to me. There's no magic words. There's not a certain prayer you've got to pray. You must repent. And you must turn to Christ. And you must trust Him with everything in you. You must see the depth of your sin. And Christ as the only Savior. And flee to Him. Believe with all your heart that Jesus is Lord and God has raised Him from the dead. Call upon Him and you'll be saved. That's the Gospel. And that's the gospel that saves. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, only you can apply your word in the way that you want it applied. And so I pray that you would. I pray, Lord God, that every person in this room would respond in the way that pleases you to what has been said today. Be glorified now in the way that as we as your people draw near to you and submit to this truth that we've heard. I pray these things in Christ's name.